Am I going? Well, it's a pleasure to be here again with you. I've actually we, every time I come, there are more people. That's a great. That's a great sign, really. And so it's lovely to be here this morning. Um, as Rob mentioned, uh, first Wednesday is uh, the first Wednesday of every month, and we're down where you guys meet on Sunday evenings at the West London. And uh, let me encourage you to come. It's if you have some friends who don't go to church or something. It's it's very informal. We last no longer than 58, 59 minutes. I had a lot of uh, non-believers who, when we first started 13 years ago, they, uh, they said to me, well, we'll come for an hour tops. So uh, we get started and we finish before 8.30. And uh, John McKinnon's coming. He's preached for us many times over the years. He is really a, an excellent evangelist. So if you're around Wednesday, with the first Wednesday of the month, that is, please join us. Now, if you would open your Bibles or your devices to Matthew 15, uh, if not, you can find it in your service sheet on the insert, the reverse side of Psalm 26. And if you've been attending recently, uh, well, you know that we're in a series in Matthew. And this morning we find ourselves at chapter 15. And as we leave chapter 14, I think we should remind ourselves that we have just witnessed and studied two of the great miracles performed by Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. And now in chapter 15, Jesus is confronted with the opposition that we've seen brewing over the last few chapters. And as I read the passage in a moment, you might want to just mentally note the outline of the event as I read. Uh, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is accosted by the Pharisees and the scribes. Verses 3 to 14, Jesus responds to the attack, and we find that the point of debate is really between ceremonial religious ritual and the deeper will of God. And then in verse 11, Jesus presents a parable to explain his position. And then in verses 15 to 20, Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. So let me pray for us, and uh, then I'll read the passage. Father, the words of Scripture are always important, and they are sufficient for building us up in the Christian life. May we strive to understand them, and even more, Father, would you give us willing hearts to be corrected and instructed and led along the way of life, even as we hear your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew 15. Starting at verse 1. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his mother or father, what would you have gained? What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. 
Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. You know, as I think about these guys, it's, it's easy to imagine that on countless occasions, the early church had to struggle with the problem of determining how much of what they formally believed and practiced needed to be continued in their new life of faith. They had no New Testament, and what we call the Old Testament was their only source of scripture. And how much of it applied to them now? How much was now redundant? And in the early days, they tried to weave their new trust in Jesus into that well-worn fabric of their familiar Judaism. But as time began to make a separation between them and the synagogue, the question became, how do we weave strands of our Jewish heritage into this new fabric of our new Christian faith? And Matthew's Gospel addresses this question on several occasions, and each time the answer is the same. Christians do not throw out the Old Testament law. And that's because faith in Christ gives us the ability to understand the intention of God that lies at the heart of the law. In fact, God's will is really a straight line from Moses straight down to Jesus. And Jesus confirms this when he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've actually come to fulfill them. But I'm sure we can all agree that it's a hard thing to get away from ideas that have been repeatedly pressed into our mind through education and practice, especially if the process began in childhood. Now, notice that the passage begins with the arrival of the Pharisees and the scribes. And even though Matthew lumps them together, they weren't actually the same. Scribes were trained scholars in the fine points of Mosaic law. And the Pharisees were actually a political party, a political party committed to total obedience of the law. And I believe that Matthew lumps them together here to show us the broad and united opposition from the religious leadership that there is against Jesus at this time. But whatever the case, these high-end leaders of the church have come to Jerusalem specifically to confront Jesus. And at the center of the confrontation is what the disciples of Jesus were not doing. Verse 2, we find the disciples were not observing the traditional custom of washing their hands before they eat. But the fact is, it's a ceremonial tradition, fundamental to, a, I guess, a proper understanding of the Lord's remarks is the fact that the requirement to wash one's hands before a meal had nothing to do with hygiene. 
It wasn't like a mother scolding her children. It was a rabbinical tradition, part of a body of interpretation of the law. And really, in reality, it was one of those additions to the law that had grown up over the centuries since the days of the early prophets. But there was nothing in the law that says an ordinary person must wash their hands before meals. And this tradition was thought to be based on the Mosaic law. It was thought to be a fair application, a fair extension of the law. But in fact, it went far beyond the law. And as Jesus taught here, it fundamentally betrayed the spirit and the intention of the law. And it eventually developed to be a, a regulation of the, of the Mishnah that governed virtually the life of everybody's life every day. And apparently the officials who come to Jesus from Jerusalem have caught the disciples eating without washing their hands. And the accusation implies that the disciples whom Jesus is responsible for have no regard for the laws of God. So Jesus responds, and his response is two-pronged. And notice, he uses this moment as an opportunity to express his view of their teaching. Firstly, we should notice how he phrases his question in exact parallel to the charge the Pharisees had brought against the disciples. Why do you, well, sorry, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus asks, and why do you break the commandment of God for your traditions? You see, these religious leaders have suggested that Jesus' disciples do not love the law of God because they don't honor tradition. And Jesus doesn't deny the charge. Instead, he accuses the leaders of loving tradition instead of the will of God. I mean, he's even accusing them here of being willing to break the true law of God for the sake of their traditions. And by anyone's thinking, I would think it's far more serious a crime to break God's law than to break traditions of men, especially when it can be shown that the traditions of men lead people to break God's commandments instead of keeping them. Now, in order to illustrate his point, Jesus cites two commandments about children's responsibilities to honor their parents from the law of Moses, from Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. And these commandments express God's will that children should respect, they should care for, they should support, and speak well of their parents. As you may know, in the ancient world, the old depended upon financial and social support from the younger generations. And at the heart of those obligations, which I think any honest and willing heart would understand, was included a child's financial obligation to care for his aging parents. But this responsibility was being evaded by a new application of the law governing oaths. In the Mishnah, there is an entire section that governs the dedication by oath. And a man could dedicate his property to God, a seemingly pious thing to do. But what he could also keep control of that property himself and render it unavailable to his parents. In other words, he could go to his parents and say, look, I could support you by the use of this property, but I have given it to God. So therefore, when I die, it needs to be here for them. I can't spend it on you now, but they would keep control of it for the rest of their lives. And the Lord's point is that such a pious fraud is in direct conflict with the will of God as expressed in the law of God. 
and a tradition of that kind, one that sets aside the word and the law of God, Jesus is saying he has no authority, and in fact, it leads people into sin. And in this instance, the tradition of the elders actually sanctions what the law of God strictly prohibits, neglect and abuse of one's parents. So not only was the tradition a false expression of the law of God, but it worked to vandalize the true commandment of God. In verse 6, Jesus summarizes his opinion of their teaching. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. And then he lets them know that centuries ago, even the Old Testament prophets recognized what was going on. Isaiah was wise to their practice of empty, self-promoting lip service to the law. Jesus quotes from Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Then, turning away from the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus tells the crowd that these religious leaders have it all wrong. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their fastidious observance of ceremonial law, while at the same time, hovering such wanton neglect of the law's moral requirements. They were totally preoccupied with appearing to be righteous while willing to accommodate the grossest sins of the heart. And he continues by saying that people are not made clean from the outside in, but instead they're made clean from the inside out. Verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person, Jesus says. And this statement seems to anger the Pharisees while it puzzles the disciples. And the disciples seem to be concerned by the Pharisees' anger, but Jesus, he just uses this opportunity to land, if you will, a sort of knockout blow. He appears to ignore the disciples' concern, and he compares these church leaders to weeds in God's garden and blind guides leading the blind. When a weed appears in God's garden, what does he do? Well, he does what anybody would do. He pulls it out by the roots. And what happens when a blind tourist is taking on a tour by a blind tourist guide? Well, eventually they end up somewhere in the ditch. But while the Pharisees are offended, the disciples seem anxious to understand the meaning of what Jesus has said. In verse 15, Peter, acting as the spokesman for the group, as he so often does, says, Jesus, explain the parable to us. And as we read Peter's words, I think we should note that they reveal a big difference between the Pharisees and the disciples. The Pharisees were spiritually ignorant, and they remained in their spiritual ignorance because they rejected Jesus' teaching. They weren't willing to go to him to hear his word and submit themselves to it. While on the other hand, the disciples were brought out of their spiritual ignorance because they went to Christ. They confessed their ignorance and they asked him to instruct their minds and their hearts by his word. The Pharisees in their pride will not acknowledge their ignorance. And so they remain ignorant. The disciples admit their confusion, they admit their ignorance, and they are instructed in the way of life. I think this is a, a very important principle for the Christian experience. 
I mean, it was Calvin who said that a teachable spirit is the first mark of a regenerate soul. So it's important how we respond when we come to teachings of the word that we don't like or we don't want to think about. I mean, is our tendency to ignore them or to reject them or, or want to change the words? Or is our tendency to submit to the word even when we don't understand it, even when we don't like it? Well, however we answer that, I think the Christian response should be like Peter's. Lord, you are my Lord, you are my master. I don't understand. Will you instruct me? And this is a very significant lesson for the Christian life. I mean, there are a lot of professing Christians today who don't like certain things about the Bible, and so they just change them or they ignore them. But that's not the teachable way of the Lord's disciple, is it? In fact, that's actually the way of the Pharisee. The way of Jesus' disciples is to submit to the authority of his word and wait for his explanation of truth, even in areas that we don't like. And so I think we learn a great lesson here in verses 11 and 15 about how the disciples of Christ should respond to their confusion. And through Peter's words, we see that at least they knew to go to Christ and to his word and to be instructed by him. So if we learn no other lesson from this passage this morning than that, I think that's a very useful lesson for the Christian life. But still, Jesus had more to say, and he goes on to present a, a contrast between his teaching on the internal defilement of the heart and the Pharisees' teaching on the external defilement of the body. Verses 17 18, Jesus makes it clear to Christians that holiness is first and foremost a matter of the heart. Look again at his words there. Hear and understand, he says. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. That's what defiles a person. And verses 17 and 18 actually explain the logic of his words in verse 11. Something that enters a person's mouth from the outside simply passes through the stomach tract and is eliminated from the body. The moral core of a person remains totally untouched. But what comes out of a person's heart is evil. The whole person is defiled. Jesus says an evil heart leads to evil deeds. Murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. Lists, incidentally, which approximates the second half of the Ten Commandments from the law of Moses. And Jesus says sin is first a matter of the heart before it's a matter of one's behavior. In other words, purity and godliness must first be in the heart before they will ever be found in the mouth or in the hand. And it's not the outward that reveals a person, but the inward. You may remember from the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord finds evil acts such as adultery, theft, and slander as first and foremost states and conditions of the heart. If they were not in the heart first, they would never appear in the behavior. I mean, no one ever falls into adultery. The adulterer's heart is always shaped and prepared by lustful thoughts before the actual deed occurs. The heart of the thief, for example, is always shaped by covetousness. Woody Allen, maybe, maybe some of you are too young to remember him, but he was a 
famous film writer and actor and comedian. And he was married to a woman named Mia Farrow for many years. And at one point, it was found that he had been having an affair with her 14-year-old daughter. And the only statement he made to the press was this. The heart wants what the heart wants. And that statement, so accurate, so true, is exactly what Jesus warns us about here. The heart wants what the heart wants. Now, having said that, I think we should give the Pharisees their due. They had reverence for the law of God. While many so-called Christians do not. They cared about obedience, while many so-called Christians seem remarkably indifferent to it. But over time, they allowed their zeal for obedience to be overcome by a false principle. Instead of obedience being the expression of an inward devotion to God and love for one's neighbor, it became a requirement to conform to a list of rules regarding virtually every aspect of behavior. The early Pharisees were moralists, that is, they came to think of obedience in an outwardly sort of way. Obedient, acts of obedience for the sake in the eyes of others. And that led them eventually to be legalists. That is, they finally came to think that they could earn God's favor and their salvation by outwardly obedience. And you know, it always happens in that order. First, it's moralism, and then it's legalism. First, an outwardly behavioral concept of obedience, followed by a reliance upon that outward obedience for one's peace with God. And when one's peace with God is determined by outward obedience, well, there is only one remedy. A person must realize that God requires purity from within, purity in the motives and attitudes of the heart. And that realization begins when a person sees the enormity the impossibility of his or her problem. And they see they can't escape from this profound sinfulness in their hearts on their own. They realize they need a savior. They need a redeemer, someone who can deliver them from their sin, this raging power, this profound impurity within themselves. The Pharisees were legalists because they imagined an adequate obedience was possible by their own efforts. And they thought that because they had redefined obedience, that it made it more practical, it was now something within their grasp. And it was this redefinition of obedience, this superficial view of obedience, that enabled the rich young ruler, for example, to, in all seriousness, to stand in front of Jesus and say to him, I have kept all the commandments from my youth. Now, I need to say that there is nothing unique about the Pharisees' situation. The history of the church is littered with these moments precisely because it is the natural tendency of the human heart. Our hearts are proud. We don't want to believe that we are as sinful and as helpless as the Bible says that we are. We're proud. We don't want to be, we want to be in control of our destiny. We don't want to be totally dependent upon the grace and the forgiveness of God. I mean, I grew up in a tradition, I guess, of moralism in the United States. I don't know how many of you know the church community in the United States, but I would say moralism is prevalent in every church community that I've ever come across in the United States. 
Fortunately, my church had not become legalistic, but it had certainly embraced the first steps of moralism. In those days, many Christians generally accepted a code of conduct by which someone's righteousness could be assessed or seen or measured. And the end result was that it led to the very same hypocrisy that Jesus expresses here. For example, a man or a woman would not go to the movies, but they would sit at home for hours and watch the same thing endlessly on television. They wouldn't play cards, they wouldn't dance, but they would indulge themselves as sports fans who spent hours and money avidly following their favorite team, probably more, than, more time than anybody could ever spend playing cards or dancing. In other words, we were fashioning an understanding of life and religion that emphasized certain behaviors to the neglect of taking care of the heart. Now, I make this point because we are all tempted to ignore the Lord's teaching here. And that's because, after all, he's talking about the Pharisees. And we're certainly not Pharisees. We're not legalists as they were. And we do think of the Pharisees as rather obvious frauds, the bad guys of the Gospels. But the fact is, they were the deeply religious people of their day, and they were admired for their zeal by the everyday churchgoer. And the fact is, every Christian is subject to the same subtle temptation to make his or her life a matter of outward performance rather than an inward devotion that only God sees. And it happens in so many different ways. I mean, I know we don't require anyone to pour water over our hands before meals, but we do look down on others for relatively minor things. And we largely ignore the pride and the self-centeredness and the evil thinking, the lust and the greed, the unbelief that rages so often, virtually unchecked in our own hearts. And what is this but the sin of the Pharisees? It's a view of the world that betrays the truth about ourselves and about the grace that God has shown to us. And if you think I might be overstating the, the issue, well, let me just ask you a simple question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but would you mind if others could look into your heart and hear your thoughts and see your attitudes and inspect your motives on a minute-by-minute -minute basis? Well, I... How do you answer that? I can tell you that godly men and women throughout the ages have been horrified by that thought. William Law, one of the great Anglican bishops, said that he would rather be hung by his neck until dead and his body thrown into a swamp rather than anyone should see what was in his heart. Luther also once wrote that he had found the seed of every sin known to man living in his heart. He went on to say that when a man like me comes to know the plague of his own heart, he's not miserable only. He is absolute misery itself. And the saintly Bishop William Beveridge, whose preaching and praying and giving to the poor were a lesson in godliness to everyone around him, nevertheless said this about himself, I can't pray, but I sin. I can't tithe, but I sin. I can't bear or preach a sermon but I sin. Nay, I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my confessions are still aggravations of my sins. 
My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears want washing, and the very washing of my tears still needs to be washed over and over and over again with the blood of my Redeemer. Now you wonder, how could a man like Beveridge say something like that about himself? Well, I think it's only because he was observing his outward behavior and not observing it from the vantage point of the eyes of others. But he was observing his behavior by the vantage point of his own heart. And from there, he could see his conduct and the truth about his attitudes, his motives, his feelings, the strengths of the weaknesses of his commitments to his heart. And he could see his heart for what it really was. In scripture, you see, the heart is the seat of the whole person. Mind, imagination, affections, will. It's the place where we are what we truly are. I mean, anyone can look better for a time. Anyone can act better than we truly are because we desire to be well thought of or because we fear the repercussions if we don't. Or maybe it's because we hope to gain some reward for ourselves and so on. But you see, down in the heart, we are what we truly are. And it's the sad confession of most Christians that for long periods of time, our outward behavior receives more of our attention than the thoughts and motives and attitudes of our hearts. I mean, this is strong teaching for believers. In fact, the Bible was written first and foremost for believers, even here in Matthew 15. Jesus didn't speak as he did primarily for the benefit of the Pharisees. I mean, it's clear in the Gospels that he thought of them, by and large, as a lost cause. I mean, they were past listening to him or repenting of their unbelief. And as the text actually makes clear here, he said what he said about external obedience in the heart, primarily for the sake of his disciples, which is to say, for your sake and for mine. We are the ones, his people, who need this message and we need to take it to heart. We are the ones who are to be put on guard against this strong tendency, the great likelihood of our focusing on the outward at the expense of the heart. And as his people, we are the ones who must take great care not to honor the Lord with our lips while allowing our hearts to be far from him. The 17th century Puritan John Flavel wrote this, the keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the great business of a Christian's life. The heart is the wellspring of life. Has it been that way for you? I mean, have you been keeping your heart as the great business of your life, especially of late? Have you, have you been attending to your heart as if it is the wellspring of your you see, the fact is that you will never cease, you will never stop to be serious about your Christian life if this remains for you a matter of the heart. Because if your heart is right, you will never be content with a superficial devotion to God. Over and over again, we're reminded of this in the Bible. In Proverbs, we're told, all a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. For Samuel tells us, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord 
looks at the heart. You see, the scripture teaches us, as Jesus does here, that the heart is the worst part of a human being. And that if a man or a woman is truly to become godly by the grace and the power of God, then the heart must become the best part of them. If the heart is good, the life and behavior will follow suit, make the tree good, and the fruit will follow. And in the life of a Christian, the Lord has already done that. The Christian has been given a new heart. The old heart has been taken out and a new one put in its place. I mean, that is the Bible's vivid metaphor for what happens when God transforms a soul and makes a human being into a new creation in Christ. Therefore, you see, we've been readied. We have been prepared once and for all for the lifelong work of the Christian. But this new heart, the new heart of the Christian, as we all know, is still encumbered by the remnants of the old nature, by sin. So there in the heart, the battle against the flesh and the sins of the flesh must be fought. All the great values of Christian godliness, all the great experiences of Christian faith must first and foremost be found in the heart. The love of God, the hatred of sin, the devotion to Christ and his cause, the zeal to serve him and to follow his commandments and, and to love for love's sake, to love our brothers and sisters, to love our neighbors, the assurance of salvation, the enjoyment of it, the, enjoyment of it, the hope of for the world to come. All this must be forged in the heart or it will not be found genuinely in the life. And it's the same with humility, sadness for one's own sins, shame for one's failure to live and serve the Lord as one should, lowliness of heart before God and man. All these must be found in the heart before they will ever be genuinely found in the behavior and the conduct. You see, you and I may fool others, but we can't fool God. And what is the deepest longing of your life? Is it to acquire this or accomplish that? Or to experience this or to enjoy that? Or is it that you should live a faithful and fruitful Christian life to the glory of God? You know, our prayer for ourselves and for our friends and neighbors should be, come, oh, come into my heart, Lord. You see, if the Lord is there, if he is truly known to you there, then you will find out what a Christian life can really become. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would make us to be not only superficial and merely professing Christians, but Christians who have been transformed from the inside out by the sovereign work of your Holy Spirit. And then help us, we pray, to desire above all else holiness and godliness so that we might live to your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>